Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm one of your hosts. I'm EAA's managing editor for print and digital content and publications. Sitting to my left this time, it is... I'm Chris Henry. I'm one of your other hosts, and I'm the museum programs representative. And, uh, and Chris, we are once again lucky enough to have uh, a guest with us in person. Uh, why don't you tell us, uh, tell us about the legend that's sitting across from us? Absolutely, Hal. You, know, you said legend, and legend is absolutely correct. That, uh, he's in my a, own mind. <laughs> <laughs> he's an absolute legend in, in uh, naval aviation and, and uh, military aviation, uh, and that is uh, Commander Randall Duke Cunningham is here with us today. Uh, sir, thank you so much. It's an honor for all of us to, to have you here in our museum today. Thank you. Chris. It really is. Uh, it really is terrific to have you here. It's amazing. Um, the uh, the caliber of people we're, we're lucky enough to spend time with and uh, certainly do appreciate your coming. Um, so let's start where I, I think we all always love to start. And that is, uh, how did you get uh, get involved in aviation? Was it something that was interesting to you as a kid? Uh, take us back. I was born in Los Angeles, but when I was in the sixth grade, we moved back to Shelbina, Missouri, population 2,113 people. And I always wanted to fly, and the only people with airplanes out there was at the golf course. Some of the farmers had airplanes, and I always wanted to fly. And then I went and I got a job uh, after I graduated from MU, University of Missouri. Uh, I was a graduate assistant uh, playing football and swimming, and then I got a job at Hinsdale High School outside Chicago, and uh, I got a chance. First time I had money in my pocket, I went out to a little airport, and I wanted to fly, and it was an Air Force puke instructor. <laughs> I call him pukes fondly, uh, but. He was a colonel, retired, and we went flying for the first time, and he showed me how to land, and then I landed, and I actually landed better than he did. He says, well, how many hours do you have, Randy? Because I wasn't Duke at that time. And uh, uh, I said, this is my first flight. And I'd always flown little airplanes with on a wire, and I knew what rudder and stuff was. And I said, I just loved, you know, I've always loved flying. and. He said, well, why don't you join the Air Force? And so I did. I went to the Air Force recruiters and told them, I said, if I join, I want to fly fighters. And they said, well, it's a needs of the Air Force. You may be flying cargo airplanes, hauling rubber dog manure. (laughs) Heard Uh, that somewhere before. (laughs) And we can't guarantee you fighters. So I went to the Navy, and they guaranteed me, if I, in writing, if I finished one or two in my class, I could get fighters. I got fighters. Wow, that's remarkable. What kind of airplane was that uh, that you got that first first flight in? Do you recall? Uh, yes, it was a um, Cessna 180. Oh wow, uh, that's a great way to a great way to start. And you mentioned flying the airplanes, the U control or control line airplanes. You do other model yeah, airplanes. Yeah, we used stuff? to put crate paper on the tail, and uh, yeah. we'd have dogfights to cut off the tail of the other guy like we had a few crashes but we had fun <laughs> they didn't have remote control at that time but right yeah it certainly wasn't in the uh, olden accessible. days <laughs> the olden days uh, so before before i shut up and let chris uh, take the next one i've got to ask when you were dogfighting back then were you good at it with those I control line beaten. models even uh when i went through with the uh, top gun as a student 
I beat them. But it, but even back in the control line with the crepe paper and the models. Oh, those? Yeah. Uh, 50-50. Okay. We had fun, yeah. We didn't care. Well, clearly you got better over time. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was your first impression when you joined the Navy? What did you think of the whole process and, and, and everything you went through? Uh, well, you, you joined, I didn't go through the academy. I went through the A- Aviation Officer Candidate School. The first thing you do is for six weeks is you show up with three drill sergeants and you live in a and you're a poopy. You wear a green sack. You're the lowest scum on the earth. Uh, my sergeant was Sergeant Walter E. Taylor, Sergeant Saunders, and Sergeant Rickards. You never forget your drill sergeants. <laughs> and I mean, it was for inspections. Your skivvies are six by six inches, not six by six and a quarter. Your socks are four two by two, and so. But it it was. Drone, and they wanted to pick out people that they may not want to have in aviation, and that was quite a, quite an experience going through because I had coached at Hinsdale and at the University of Missouri. I was a little older, uh, but to go through that, it was whoa, through uh, through Indoc Battalion they called. Then we went to uh, Battalion and the Battalion One, Two, and Three in Pensacola, and they were having sports days. And uh, I remember the uh, lieutenant walked up that he said, anybody from this class is a runner. And they said, well, Duke ran at the University of Missouri. And so I ran the 100. I ran the 100, won the 100-yard dash. I run the cross country. Uh, and I got second in the obstacle course. And so they, they made me a regimental commander over everybody else. And, but it was, it was a good thing. Uh, I've got a silver dollar in my pocket right now that uh, my dad gave me to give to the sergeant when you salute the first non-commissioned officer. And it was that you didn't want to give up that silver dollar because 50% quit. And my dad says, you spend this silver dollar with your sergeant and remember, don't quit. And so I've carried that uh, silver dollar in my pocket since 1967. Wow. That's amazing. That's that's awesome. Um, while you were going through your, the process of learning to fly fighters, what was the progression? Like, what types of aircraft did you fly? Well, we went through um, Pensacola in a T-34, a little prop airplane, which I loved, this little airplane. Uh, then we graduated from there. I went to uh, Meridian, Mississippi, where we flew my first jet. It was a, a T two that we flew and we uh, went through basics of that you do in any school uh, I'd never had any instruments in the uh, by the time I got to instruments you always were supposed to be ready for the next flight well I didn't even have the lectures and we got up in the air and the guy says okay take me over that on such and such radial I said what's a radial you know, so I, I didn't get an okay on that flight, but he, he understood. I hadn't even had the lectures. Uh, and then so we went through all the tactics phase and stuff. And from there, we went to uh, Kingsville, VT-25. Uh, the other two squadrons had killed a couple students. And, it, and so the call was stay alive with 25. And so I went through there, and it was the old uh, F-9 swept wing. And you used to have to climb up like this. You'd dogfight, and you had to spiral all the way down because you didn't have a lot of power. Then you'd climb it up. And we did uh, care quals 
uh, back in Pensacola with a T2. And so then uh, the top students got to go to uh, fighters, and I went to NAS Miramar and uh, ended up flying F-4 Phantoms. Wow. So what was your, uh, what was your first impression of the F-4, the Phantom? It's such a big, well, brutish airplane. Well, my very first flight, Dan Patterson was a Top Gun instructor at the day. He was actually CO, okay. and he wrote a new book about Top Gun. Uh, this is my first flight. He's in the back seat, and we'd flown simulators, you know, for all the instruments and stuff, and I had gone through and had to know how to control things for spin and stuff. We got out in Whiskey 291, which was a training area, and he said, I said, okay, Randy, take the airplane. We were at 500 knots. He said, take the airplane, point it straight up, and run out of speed. I said, is it going to spin? <laughs> he said, no. You leave all your, your uh, controls neutral, your rudder, your stick, and don't put it aft. Just leave the stick neutral. Airplane went up like this, ran out of speed, the nose fell through, and he said, okay, add your power back like this, go down, get five, and we did five or six of those. And I tell you, that one flight gave me so much confidence that not worrying about the airplane was going to, oh, she'd spin, but she'd forgive you. It's a good lady, the F-4. Uh, But Dan Patterson, I think, gave me my first ride that it gave me a lot of confidence in the airplane. And then we went through the, the full uh, scope of training, of instruments, tactics, uh, low-level flying, those kind of things. And then toward the end was uh, air-to-air tactics, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> that sounds like an understatement. Um, something I was wondering about with the F-4, that first flight. So you're, you've got the CO in the back. Well, at, at that time, I wasn't just—I'd flown uh, the F-4, but um, when I got— Done with the RAG, the F-121, I was supposed to go to uh, the USS uh, uh, Enterprise, but they had that big fire. So our guys, they lost a bunch of of aviators and airplanes and everything on that fire. And uh, because they were mourning a lot of people, they took off for a a month. And they said, uh, Randy, we want you to fly these airplanes and keep them keep them fresh. I went, okay. (laughs) So for the first time, I was out there flying airplanes. I didn't have an instructor in the backseat. I just had another uh, backseater. And I got to take it out, and I I took it to uh, 15,000 feet and split est uh, at 250 knots, at 500 knots. I took it up. I got up to over 60,000 feet, which scared me because the engines oversped with the thin air. I didn't think about that. But uh, I turned and saw how many Gs I could sustain at different altitudes and different things. So I really got to feel uh, the phantom talks to you. The, the stick, if you're getting in there and it starts vibrating, it tells you, it's telling you what your speed is and the vibration of it. And if you get there and she really gets to vibrate, she's saying, Randy, I'm going to depart on you if you do it. So I pulled it and I departed like, and it recovers. She forgives you. I have a favorite saying, an airplane is like your wife. My wife's sitting next to me here, Sharon Stone, who was the first woman ever hired by NASA to train astronauts, which she did for 20 years. Remarkable. But uh, I flew the, you know, I flew the different uh, angles of attack, seeing what it would do. But it gave me tremendous skill. And then once I got in the squadron, uh, 
our skipper, Early Wynn, uh, believed in flying against dissimilar airplanes, like F-4, not F-4 against F-4, like the Air Force was doing. They were afraid of losing airplanes. And when the prisoners of war came back, about every other one was POW shot down by MiG. Uh, our kill ratio uh, got to be uh, 12 to 1. The Air Force had a 1 to 1 kill ratio uh, because of their training, lack of training. They later established their, their fighter weapons school, and they've got a lot of good things that we didn't have in, in their school. So they're a bunch of Air Force pukes, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, but in those those training flights, uh, I also, uh, when I was at Top Gun, I got to fly the F-4s against Top Gun pilots. So I got to see from the bad guy's side what they were looking at, how to cut you off, uh, and so on. Example, uh, I had one guy that uh, was flying a Phantom, and he was supersonic, and I closed on him in an A-4, and he said, how do you do that? You're only a .9 airplane to Mach 1 if you're going downhill. And I showed him, and he was turning in an arc, and I cut across a circle. And I gave him the thing. I said, 1 minus the cosine of the angle off times 2 airspeed is the formula for closure. And if you're holding me off at 30 degrees, it's about 110 feet per second. If you put me out to 45 just for 15 degrees, you get about 300 degrees a second that I'm closing on you. And I said, just point the nose away. If I'm a missile airplane, you got to watch for that. But if I'm a MiG-17 and a guns-only airplane, you just unload the airplane and walk away from me. So those kinds of things, learning how to fly. And then once I got into VF-96, my first fighter squadron, we got to fly uh, out of uh, El Centro and actually flights where we had uh, bombers going out to hit targets and we had to keep the the bad guys off of the, the bombers and stuff. I also got to go up in an unnamed area and flew against the MiG-17, the MiG-21. We had MiG-19s, I didn't fly that. But I got to uh, fight against those, which gave me a great uh, experience. Uh, for example, uh, it, uh, when we get slow, we can only turn about 12 degrees a second in a Phantom. They turn at 18 degrees a second. It doesn't tell you that it takes a mathematician to figure out if you get in a horizontal turn, they're going to climb on your butt and they're going to kill you. So those kinds of things, when I got into combat, my first MiG, I never believed that a MiG would ever beat me, and none did. You mentioned an unnamed area. Is this a mysterious place in Nevada? Yes. By any chance? Just, yeah, it was. Just a hunch. I actually spent, <laughs> I spent a lot of time up there, especially when I was in Congress and I was chairman of Intel uh, Committee, uh-huh. subcommittee. I got up there and because you couldn't learn everything, it would compartmentalize. And I said, I want to see everything. <laughs> I, I got to ask, uh, did you see anything uh, at that point? That you still, no, the answer is that no. That you still can't tell us? No. Okay. I can't, you can't tell anything about the area. Ah, gotcha. Even today. Even today. I don't want to end up in Leavenworth. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's fair enough. I had one other quick note I made myself is amazing. When you were, uh, when you were in, maybe in high school and you're learning trigonometry, would you ever have believed that you would use trigonometry in combat in figuring out closure rates and cutting across the circle and things like well, that? I was always good at math, uh, and I enjoyed math, but um, I used it to show people mathematically 
how they were making mistakes. And uh, when I showed them that, they said, what else you got, Duke? <laughs> and, and I used math in a lot of cases on closure rates and uh, because when you're flying against an airplane, it's like two fists, not wings. And that, that fist is moving, and you're trying to maintain a certain position on that. that. And mathematics always comes, and music comes into that, too. Music? The, the rhythm of, you know, ba-bum, 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 you know, any reverse. And it's kind of a rhythmic thing that you've got, to, and it's just in your mind uh, when you're looking at those kind of things. And I used all of those. I never thought about one minus a cosine the angle off when I'm turning against a MIG. <laughs> sure. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and cutting across a circle, or if one was cutting across me, I knew how to do a high G barrel roll or something like that. It was all automatic. Wow. Uh, I'll tell you another side story, though. Uh, when we were training, I went down um, to a, an area in actually my first cruise in Vietnam, down a place called Anlock. It was 100 miles away from the closest MIG, and I had a different uh, wingman at this day. And we were bombing a target and uh, dropped rock guy on it, and as I, that was 142 mils on the gun sight. Well, as I pulled off, I said to my wingman, I said, 35 mils, which is the mill setting for your sidewinders and sparrow that bore sights your, your missile to your airplane, okay. like that. And then I said, set labs, ready, direct, or three switches, and go to arm. Uh, labs, ready, direct. All I have to do is hit a pickle, and my center line goes away. And he said, Duke, why, you know, we're not even close to a MIG. That same guy got behind a MIG and forgot to go to arm. And uh, just didn't get his MIG. Uh, but those are things, I, I coined a phrase, you fight like you train. I went out against a, a missile shoot, or a drone shoot, when I was in that same squadron. And you got an instructor on your wing, you shoot a sidewinder and a sparrow at this drone, and it's got a flare for hotshot for your sidewinder. And when you get behind it, you call standby, standby to let your instructor know you're about to shoot. You call Fox 2 for Sidewinder, when, or you call Hotshot to pop the flare. And you call Trigger Squeeze, op away, the missile comes off, and then Bula Bula if you knock it. My first kill, I've got the radio tape of it. I call behind a MiG-21, standby, standby, Fox 2, op away. I didn't have to call Hotshot because he was already in burner. Right. But guy you didn't got need back the big pilot to turn on a flare said for you. Duke, you sound like you're in a missile shoot. And I said, you fight like you train. When I was in San Diego, I had a little pickup truck. I had switches, labs, ready, direct, and arm. I had a gun sight up here. If I saw an airplane, I was judging the degrees. I really believed in that, that some guy out there was training harder, and I needed to train harder than them so I can win. And I think that's a lot. That attitude paid off. Incredible. Well, as we talk about uh, you know your your combat uh, career, we we want to make sure we include your backseater. Uh, we just talked to him a little. You just talked to him a little bit ago on the phone. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him and how you met him? How you well, met I call Willie today because Willie's from Boston. He used to say, Duke, go to we park this airplane. We don't park airplanes. But he's a great guy. We're, we're welded at the hip as brothers and stuff. But on my second cruise, I could pick my own RO that was coming into VF-96. 
And Willie pulled up in a Volkswagen Beetle, needed a paint job, and he had a keg of beer in the back window and a Budweiser sticker. And I said, that's the guy I want. <laughs> and so Willie and I became really good. And I used to give him hell that, you know, I'd, I'd have him do the nav computer. I said, where's Red Crown? Where's this? Where's that? And I just chewed his ass out all the time. When he started chewing my ass out for making mistakes, I knew that he had gotten there. Because you don't want to make make mistakes, it kills you. And we we grew like that together. And uh, like I said, I called him for St. Patty's Day. I give you an idea. When we went to New York after we became aces, of uh, a, a uh, reporter said, "Mr. Driscoll, there you were. You butchered." He used that word "butchered" a North Vietnamese pilot in his airplane. And you were shot down, you're coming over water. Now, Willie was a swimming hold. He couldn't swim. He had to go back through the program. He could barely dog paddle. And he said, what thought was going through your, your mind, Willie? And Willie, you got to know him. He said, uh, perhaps I'd made an incorrect decision in leaving the Army Reserves in Boston. <laughs> you know, the guy had nothing to say, but that's Willie. You know, he, he's just a, a great guy. Uh, I think Willie is even more than his flying skills. Uh, he adopted two children, and those kids are so neat. And he's a great father, uh, but he's he's a character. It's amazing that you two, uh, you know, as a, as a team and as a crew in Vietnam, yeah. are still so close today. Well, being president of the American Fighter Aces Association, uh, one of the board members named Ward, uh, I said. The Air Force honors backseaters as aces. The Navy recommends them, but the American Fighter Aces does not. We brought a bill, a, an amendment to the, the charter that aces that flew in fighters, not B-17 drivers with guns or something, but they are full credit aces. We got that passed, and so now Willie, Jeff Feinstein with the Air Force, and uh, uh, or not Jeff Feinstein, but Feinstein and Jeff Ethel, those three are all now aces. Chuck to Bellevue, yeah, and Feinstein. Wow. That's fantastic. So we got that done. So, And how many combat deployments did you go on in, during Vietnam? I went first on the USS uh, Ranger. And uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm having a senior moment. My first airplane was on... Huh, I got to get a carrier I was on and everything. But anyway, I went on that one. Remember, we weren't flying up north at that time, and I saw some AAA and things like that. Um, and then when we came back, uh, I flew. Uh, I was shot down on my 300th mission, so I only had 299 and a half missions. After I shot down three MiGs that day, oh, yeah, I was on the USS, and my wife just patted me on the, the USS America. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, US, And then the Connie was my second one. Wow. Now, the, when you first started uh, your first kill, that actually happened when you were on the Constellation, correct? Yes. Uh, we were bombing uh, an airfield that we knew that MiGs were operating out of, and they were shooting at our B-52s that were going up through Laos. And... At that time, you couldn't strike North Vietnam. They didn't trust us to go in there. You couldn't strike unless they were, even if they were shooting at you. And we used to go up by Ban Karai, Magia, and Ban Nappi, the three passes. And we couldn't go through there, but we could see 
Russian and Vietnamese trucks coming through with all the stuff that's going down Ho Chi Minh Trail. So our leadership went and got permission, said, okay, we got these MiGs operating at the, uh, trying to hit our B-52s down. If we go in there and they shoot at us, we can hit them at that time at Quang Lang Airfield. So we knew that they would get shot at, so we just so happened to have 35 airplanes with us. <laughs> the vigilantes went over and took pictures, and they had SAMs fired at them. And we went in, and my job was to position myself between the northern MiG bases and the strike group. And when the uh, strike group came in, we had 36 SAMs fired at us. I had SAMs fired from my right side, my port side, and from my starboard side. I broke into them, and then they fired at my belly side. I broke into those. So after that, they told us that uh, 5Gs would beat a SAM, 7 does. <laughs> and But it took me out of airspeed, and I'm heading straight down in full burner just trying to get speed back on the airplane. And I looked up, and there were two airplanes. Uh, and my first thought, well, two A7s. And I said, A7s don't have afterburner. And I looked, and it was two MiG-21s. And I'm closing over them, and they're right down in the treetops. And uh, so I'm going at about 600 knots, about 100 feet off the ground, chasing two MiG-21s. And uh, the uh, I got in behind them in Sidewinder, and I shot at the starboard one, and I know he couldn't have seen me because I'm dead six o'clock. His wingman had to call it, and he broke, and the, the lead side, the first sidewinder couldn't make the turn. Well, he was actually in a starboard turn, and he just dropped his left wing like he's going to reverse, and I shot before I ever, and when he reversed, he was dead six o'clock, and the missile went right clear through him, and he tumbled, and he died. The second one was... Uh, hauling ass up toward the north, and I tried to go. Now, Sparrow only had a 7% kill probability, very low, and I always knew I'd use a Sidewinder, but he was out of range for my Sidewinder, so I tried to pick off a Sparrow while he had him locked, and uh, uh, nothing came off. There was a shortage in the ejector cartridge, so again, but uh, I just wanted to shoot at him anyway. But Willie came back and he said, Duke, what's your fuel state? And I said, Willie, don't ch don't bother me. I'm chasing a MiG. <laughs> and he said, Duke, damn it, what's your fuel state? And I, I went, 5.5.5. .5 and I had to go all the way back to the carrier. And so I, I missed where the missile sites were, went, and I asked to find a Texaco, a tanker. And they said, well, the Texaco tried to plank somebody and it didn't work. And I said, let me try. So I joined behind an A3 and the the boom came back and I plugged and the fuel just flew back. It worked real good so I didn't have to go into an Air Force puke airplane uh, <laughs> landing zone because they would have painted their stickers all over my airplane. <laughs> Couldn't have that. Oh my gosh. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, curious if you can uh, if you can tell us uh, when you got your call sign, when they started calling you Duke. I had, uh, after uh, uh, Dan Pettigrew or not Dan Pettigrew, uh, Dan Pedersen, uh, his call sign was Yank, and I took Yank. And um, so I thought that was pretty good. And then I said, well, I'll be Maverick. And so I became Maverick and for just a short time. And then when I got my uh, kills, uh, my commanding officer, 
uh, said, Duke, the Admiral wants to see you. I'd had two kills at that time, and I said, what have I done? I haven't done anything wrong. Usually when you saw the captain, it was a problem. Right. And he called up, and he said, hey, Duke, how are you doing? I said, good, Captain. He said, well, he said, now you've become the leading uh, MiG shooter here in Vietnam that's here today. And the Vietnamese were monitoring their radios. They monitor us, and they're trying to shoot you down with SAMs, with MiGs, with AAA, and it's putting you at hazard. And I said, you know, Captain, I want them to know I'm up here. I want them to launch their MiGs because we can't find those little suckers. And he said, Duke, it's not just you that's at risk. It's anybody that flies with you. So he said, your skipper just told me, he said, even on flight ops, when you come back, if there's a John Wayne movie at midnight, you watch it. You watch all the Jane Wayne movies. And he said, Duke, your new call sign is Duke. <laughs> and that's how I got the call sign Duke. Wow. Did you forget to meet John Wayne? Huh? Oh, yeah. I, he invited me up uh, Northern California, up around Los Angeles, and he had his boat up there. And I went up there, and he had a bunch of guys, and they each had a fifth of whiskey. And they took the caps off, and they didn't have glasses. <laughs> and uh, there was a poker game. There was like seven, six guys in this poker game. And they started at about 8 o'clock. We got through like at 4 in the morning. And I, I ended up actually getting into the poker game and won money. And they said, you got to come back, let us try. I said, no, I got my money. <laughs> but yeah, and he invited me to go out on his boat, and still, which I didn't do. Uh, but what a wonderful guy he was. And I saw him at a banquet, and uh, the orchestra guy said, Mr. Wayne, we want to play your favorite song. And John Wayne stood up and he said, uh, nah. He said, my favorite song is the national anthem. Oh, wow. And I thought, yes, that's my guy. <laughs> that's the, and that, that was John Wayne. He that's was the answer you want to hear from John Wayne. Never served in the it? service, but what he portrayed in his films and what he had in his heart, I thought he was one of the greatest patriots in the, in the history of this country. My gosh. Wow. <laughs> so we started talking about uh, uh, some of your combat, but we've got to talk about the action on May 10th. Oh, um, that takes a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all right. We it have you until tomorrow. So. Anyway, a lot of interesting it, it, it people out there. I'm going to talk about a little bit about this tonight. Yeah. Thing. Um, I was not on the schedule for that flight. I wasn't on it. And I looked at the flight schedule, and I know they're going downtown Hanoi. And I said, there's going to be mixed flying. I already had two kills. And uh, so I went to the skipper, and I said, skipper, you're missing a phantom out of this flight, and we're going to go up there where there's MiGs. You need that extra fighter. And he laughed, and he says, well, CAG is having his airplane for his change of command, 00, down in the hangar bay, and they're spit-shining it for his change of command. If you can get him to let you fly it and bring it up and arm it and fuel it and get it all ready, then you could go. He didn't think there was any way. But I used to sit down with the guys and the with the enlisted guys and sit and have a cup of coffee with them and stuff. And I went down and said, guys, I really need your help. I need to get this airplane up on top for that launching that's going to go to Hanoi. They got the airplane uh, all cleaned off. They got it, uh, the missiles put on it. They got the airplane fuel topside like that. I was the last guy off the deck that day, and which actually turned out to be a benefit because they went up to about 12,000 feet, and you got a tanker sinking, all of them 
got their full tanking, and then they headed off. They were already gone by the time I got airborne. And I got up and I got the tanker and I said, hey, can you steer toward our strike group? So I said, okay, I want to plug in closer to when we're to the target. I plugged in and when I turned into the beach, I had full center line and full internal fuel. So I had a big advantage. And uh, when I went in, I was a flak suppressor that day to, to knock out the SAM sites. And it was around Hydwong Railroad Yard. And we went in and... The first airplane, CAG, who was Gus Eggert, called and says, uh, Busy Bees, uh, which were the A7s, you've overflown the target. It's hard to see with all that city and stuff down there. So they turned around and came back down, and it was like a, uh, uh, a train. The gunners know what line you're in. It's like train events. You don't do that. But they came down like that, and Silverkite, which had the executive officer, uh, of the VF-92, and Steve Rudloff was in his back seat, uh, right in front of me, uh, blew up. Uh, one of the MiG drivers said, well, I, we sh I shot the MiG-21. I shot that guy down. I said, no, you didn't. It was AAA that shot. I watched, I watched the AAA destroy him and bail out. He didn't come back. And uh, his son used to come to me and ask about his dad when I was back home. Same stories, but they brought him back from missing in action, and it was like a 1,000-pound weight had been lifted off that child's back, seeing his dad that he knew he's back, and they buried him. But on that strike, uh, as I pulled off target, um, I pulled off target, I went labs ready, direct, uh, labs ready, direct, arm, and I got rid of my, uh, I didn't get rid of the center line yet, and I set 35 mils after I dropped my bomb, my rock eye. And I came off target with a nose up, and I rolled to the starboard side, the right side for you Air Force pukes. <laughs> rolled those to the starboard side, and I looked down, and I said, Willie, look at that target we just hit. It just decimated it with the rock eyes. I, I later, last two years ago, went back to that site and saw where I hit and it's still damaged. Uh, but I rolled back, and Brian grabbed my wingman and said, Duke, MiG's at 7 o'clock. And I turned to the port side, left side, and I looked, and here are two MiG-17s closing on me like this. And they're coming downhill, and they had a lot of speed. Two days prior to that, on 8 May, I had a MiG on either side of me, and I turned start, right starboard, and they shot, and I turned port and they shot ahead of me. I knew if I went pure vertical that they would rendezvous on me and kill me. So I rolled and I put 12 G's on the airplane, broke both flap hinges in the airplane. Wow. The airplane was down for over a month when I got back. And I drove into the clouds and there were mountains down there. I didn't know if I was going to hit a mountain, but that's the only option that I had. Uh, but uh, when uh, back to the 10 May, when I came off, I had all those switches set. And I looked at this guy, a MiG-17 doesn't have hydraulically boosted controls. It takes a big gomer in there to pull that pole. He can't, it, at that speed, it's almost impossible. So I said, okay, he's going fast, I can break into him, he can't make this turn. His wingman were behind him went vertical. And so when he overshot, I reversed, and the only thing I had to do is pull the trigger. 
I didn't have to go to four switches, labs, ready, direct, arm, and set the gun sight. And that's why I say you fight like you train. Yeah, I was down in an lock 100 miles away from the closest MIG, but I had trained myself. When I see that MIG, I'm going to be ready. And he blew up. And then uh, the other guy coming down, and I used a what we call MIG-17 disengagement maneuver. A MIG-17, uh, I roll at 250 degrees a second. He only rolls at 134 degrees a second. And so I roll real quick. As he's rolling real slow, I pull away from him, and then I unload, reverse, and spec. And about the time he's just starting to come to try and get guns to me, well, I roll again. And I fully move away from him because I have more power and more speed. And I got away from him. Well, then I got away from him. Brian joined back up on me, and I said, okay, Brian, let's go vertical. We went vertical straight back toward the fight, and I'm looking, and there's two F4s and a circle with MiGs. You don't do that because they, they cut across the circle. It was my XO, Dwight Tim, Jim Fox in his back seat. And so I started, I had this MiG coming like this, and I was coming on his belly side, and I was just about to squeeze a trigger, and another Phantom, he would have taken paint off my airplane if he had been closer. Scared the hell out, I went through the burble and stuff, and I pulled up and went vertical, and I didn't get that kill. But then I came back, and now I'm on the opposite side in this turn. I'm in the same damn turn, and I've got too many angles. And so I'm screaming. I got the tape you want to hear it sometime. I'm screaming at him, reverse starboard, reverse starboard, which meant when we say that, you go underneath because if you just reverse starboard, the MiG is there. But if you reverse starboard underneath, you roll like this, you go underneath like this, and it leaves the MiG. He rolls because I'm here, puts his tail right to me just like we trained, okay? And so when he did that, I got a tone and I was afraid of my heat seeker going after the Phantom with a bigger heat source. They know they come back on the power to come out of afterburner. And so the missile, had blew up right beside him. And that, that MiG was killed. Now, during that time though, there was a MiG-21 behind him also. And did I just tell you the story about the MiG-21 that I met the MiG-21 driver in Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City, and he said, Duke, thank you for not picking me. <laughs> and there was another guy named Nguyen Van Tu. Nguyen was in a 17, and as I started turning port, he started to close on me, and he just started to pull lead for a gunshot. And I said, Nguyen, how come you didn't at least try to shoot at me? He laughed. We'd been drinking a lot of scotch that night. And he laughed, and he said, Duke, I ran out of bullets. <laughs> oh, True stories. I would have liked to have known that. About what, uh, about what era was it that you went back to Vietnam and, and were able to meet some of these uh, guys? Two years ago. Well, they came to San Diego, and we met them. And then they asked us to go over there, and uh, I did. And the pilots that we met in San Diego, um, the, the MiG drivers, said, well, would you— the family has asked us, would you come? This uh, Van Key that I shot down, he didn't survive. The family would like to talk to you. I was a little hesitant sure. when I went back over there, but I went on this tour of Vietnam, and Vietnam is beautiful. Their five-star hotels are better than any hotel we've ever seen here. They have exercise things along the beach, and they've really done a nice job. Um, but... They asked if I would go to this. I had a plaque made up with Van Keem's name on it, 
that basically said, we honor Van Keem just like we honor our own fallen, and we have respect for him. And I gave that to the parents, and I gave a white scarf. They had they lost a father and mother money in war before that, and uh, they had the shrine, and so I gave them that for their little shrine and stuff. Well, after a two-hour lunch, the two brothers and two sisters came up to me, and they grabbed me, and both the, all four of them hugged me, and they said, Lieutenant Cunningham, you are now our new brother. Now, fighter pilots don't cry, but I couldn't, <laughs> harp, I couldn't help it. It was, we don't think about, and I'm going to talk about this tonight, we don't think about, in, you know, we, we try to do our job and, and shoot down the enemy, but there's those families that are left behind, uh, and that's in Kiev right now you're looking at that. Um, but it gives you a different perspective on that. And I made a lot of good friends over in Vietnam. If they were flying against China, China, I'd go over and fly with them right now with the Vietnamese. Wow, that's that's remarkable. That's that's something that you you hear about from time to time. Is you know after the cessation of hostilities, it it it. This, maybe this is just a cliche, or maybe these are the stories I've been most interested in. But it sort of seems like it's the fighter pilots from opposing sides who who tend to become friends first, or well, the, it is. those I friendships mean, tend to be. They were uh, doing the same thing we were. Uh, how that they were trying to fight for their country and stuff. I will never forgive those guys that were the Vietnamese who were in the Hanoi Hilton and the thing that were torturing. They vehemently divide. Uh, say they've never tortured anybody, which is BS. And uh, matter of fact, I made a mistake when I was over there and talked about it, and they, oh, they all, they all went up in arms. We never torture anybody, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, but, but they do. And uh, I will not forgive those, but these guys that flew fighters, uh, yeah, we became good friends. We drank a lot of scotch when I was over there. <laughs> that, that does seem to help break the ice, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. We could, I could easily talk this all day and and I'm going to because I'll be with you tonight too um, but I, I think I'd be remorse uh, if I didn't ask you about Top Gun uh, I mean with with the with a new movie coming out it, I think so many people are, are are getting excited about it and the original uh, again and, and I know you actually became a, a Top Gun instructor after, after yes, combat. Yes I did um, I was in my office one day and I just, it was my change of command where I became from XO to commanding officer of the adversary squadron, VF-126. And I'm taking my sword off and my choker whites. We're going over for, uh, to the club and have hors d'oeuvres and people coming over. And three kids came in and knocked on the door and they came in and said, uh, Commander Cunningham, how come you've been avoiding you? And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. It was Tom Cruise, Anthony Edwards, and Val Kummer. <laughs> and I had not seen risky business and some of the, you know, I'm in the business of training pilots to fight in wars and stuff. And they sat down and they laughed and they said, well, you know, Commander Cunningham, he said that the Navy has been reluctant to continue filming the, the movie because there's too many areas that are spoofs to make it more of a comedy. And the Navy said, no, we're not going to do that. He said, can you go down and give Jerry Bruckheimer and Dunsimson uh, some things that really happened in your real life? And I said, sure. 
And I went down and uh, I flew by the tower and when I flew against a Top Gun instructor, split off from him like I'm not supposed to do, flew by the tower, got in trouble. I didn't have to see the cap. I had to go see uh, the Admiral at Common Air Pack when he said, Cunningham, if you ever do that again, I'm going to have you hauling rubber dog SHIT. <laughs> but then uh, the uh, I flew upside down. There was a Russian bear on the airplane, and we get try to intercept him hundreds of miles away from the carrier. And he headed toward the carrier, and I'm supposed to put my airplane between his cameras and the airplane to see the F-4s or F-14s or our missile systems because they get intel on it. And he let down close to the water, and as we got close to the ship was over here on the starboard side, as we got close, he broke into me. It forced me down. My tailpipe actually skimmed the water. I went to full burner and just kept the airplane from stalling because he slowed down also. And he tried to kill me. And so he started his climb out, and I called the ship, and I said, ship, this guy just tried to kill me. I have permission to fire, and I couldn't get permission. I was going to kill the rascal. <laughs> but uh, uh, they wouldn't let me. So as he was climbing out and going to Vladivostok, I passed underneath him supersonic. I put him through that supersonic burble, which is, I'm sure just tore the hell out of that airplane. I run out in front of him, pure vertical, reversed upside down out of him, drove the airplane upside down, and as I looked at the pilots, they're looking up, and they kind of ducked, thinking that we were going to hit. I was going to do a suicide on them. Well, I put the stick forward, and I just stopped it right there. And when they looked back up, I went, <laughs> gave them my sign. <laughs> that was another sign on it. Too. Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea that was <laughs> the mink kills on a were actually choreographed after my actual mink kills, too, including pulling the speed brakes and dropping the flaps and letting somebody fly by. Wow. wow. That's amazing. So that whole uh, that whole MiG-28, because I was inverted thing in the film, was was you <laughs> over a, a TU-95, a bear. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they, I told them the story on a bear, but they did it yeah. on a MiG-28. Right. Wow. That's it was actually good. on a bomber. That's incredible. That's hey, absolutely incredible. You, you, what, are, what are there a couple of uh, other stories? I believe the uh, the serenade in the bar was actually something that happened in real oh, life. Oh, you too. lost that loving feeling? Yep. <laughs> Did that. <laughs> Worked it almost every time. <laughs> I've witnessed I'm, I'm it. I'm trying not to make <laughs> yeah. eye contact with Sharon at this point. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I didn't know Sharon at that time. <laughs> and I also sang it to her. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Listen, I've got the best wife in the whole world. Like I said, she was the first woman ever hired by NASA to train astronauts. She did that for 20 years. Uh, she was a department head for Disney, uh, changed the whole department head on contractors. Uh, she uh, fixed my sway bars on, my, on her tractor when I broke them. <laughs> she crawled underneath and fixed them. She can change her brakes, and she likes margaritas. So I really have a winner. <laughs> You're a lucky, lucky man, indeed. All right. Well, I think we're just about up against the uh, up against the clock here, uh, Duke. But boy, what a what a pleasure! As Chris said a moment ago, we could just I'll keep... come back during the air show. Would you please? Yeah. yeah. We'd we'd love to have you back. We could just keep going this and going and going. The, the stories. Oh, hey, I want to say thank you. I'd never been to Oshkosh. The people I've met here at the museum and so on are so friendly, and and you meet people and you don't see them again. But I hope to meet all you guys again and gals because. 
The hotel is really nice, and Sharon and I are having the best time in our life. And Oshkosh is a worldwide event. I've never been here. I, I've always had problems getting here, uh, but I'm really going to enjoy it. I'm going to come a day early, and Chris is going to take me fishing. Yep, oh, there absolutely. you go. That's great. <laughs> not ice fishing. I'm not, not going to do that. Yeah. You're not we ready should, to try ice, ice fishing? should be thawed by July. Yeah, so. I was going to say, yeah, come back in uh, you know, January, February of next year, and, and uh, you get to see what uh, see what that's about. Well, I can't wait to hear what kind of tall fishtails you guys come back with. Um, I'll believe it if I hear from you, but I won't believe it from him. Because <laughs> oh, of, yeah. oh, of course, <laughs> of course you will. It's a competitive spirit. So, Duke, thanks again uh, so much for coming, Sharon. Thank you for sitting uh, sitting in. Thank uh, you. I would love to talk to talk to you more uh, one of these days. And great to hear you coming back, uh, Duke. Thank you so much once again, and uh, thanks especially to everybody out there uh, for listening. Uh, thanks to all of you who take the time to uh, to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we all. Also, really appreciate it uh, when you head over to inspire.ea.org and you find uh, the page for uh, each one of these episodes and leave comments there. We look at those. Uh, and anyone uh, who's interested can also send a note to feedback at ea.org, and that finds its way to us. And uh, it's the it's the positive comments and the great, uh, the great support that we get from everybody out there. That's why we're able to continue doing this show. So once again, thanks, everybody. And uh, we look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.